Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Nicholas Bomarito. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Simon Fraser University. His research focuses on questions in virtue ethics, moral psychology and Buddhist philosophy. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Seeing Clearly, A Buddhist Guide to Life. Okay, so Dr. Bomarito, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure yeah. to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, great. So uh, let me start with this question. So because I've heard people arguing over this several times, is Buddhism a philosophy, a religion, or both? Yeah, that's a perennial question in some circles. Uh, and in certain ways, I think it's a question from a certain point of view. So, um, like, you could ask other questions from other points of view, but people don't seem that interested. So you could ask, for example, like, is Christianity a dharma or not? Uh, and Or is, you know, uh, is Islam a Tao? You know, you could ask from these other points of view. Right. Uh, and I think part of the reason people are interested in it is like there's a particular thing that's happening in the broader culture where uh, basically like science and religion have a fight and then everyone picks sides and people want to know what side Buddhism is on that on that kind of fight. Um, and so I guess the the sort of boring answer is kind of like it depends what you mean by religion. <laughs> um, so certainly uh, a lot of Buddhists around the world, uh, it's clear to me anyway, relate to Buddhism in ways that uh, it make it a religion. There's, there's supernatural forces that they're trying to influence. There's a kind of cosmology that is, is non-natural. Um, right. There's a kind of uh, framework for like uh, salvation or sot soteriology. Um, and, you know, there's a group of Buddhists that are trying to modernize it, that want to make Buddhism consistent with natural science. And uh, I guess my kind of view is, like, they're Buddhists, too, and that's a thing they're trying to do with Buddhism. Uh, so it's uh, it's a kind of interesting time. So I guess it's sort of like, it depends on which Buddhists and sort of what you mean by religion. Right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because... Uh, what I read from Buddhism was mainly focused on the philosophy and not so much on yeah. the religion side of things. So are there any particular Buddhist sects, for example, where people believe in gods? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I guess in a certain way, if you're talking about like little g gods, maybe. You know, so, so generally people don't accept like the capital G omnipotent, omniscient, kind of kind of uh, Judeo-Christian Islam kind of God. But, um, you know, lots, it, lots of, it's, it's like a pan-Buddhist thing to accept different kinds of beings. So uh, not just good ones, but like, uh, you know, bad ones or, or, you know, there's ones, there's ones called pretas, which are like sometimes translated as hungry ghosts. So they have these big bellies and tiny mouths and they're hungry all the time. So, uh, but it's a little bit like in Christianity, like you'd be like, oh, is there a particular sect of Christianity that like believes in angels? And you're like, I don't know, it's kind of like 
a lot of them do. It's kind of it's kind of like a, a pan pan Buddhist thing. So yeah, definitely there's a lot of Buddhists that accept just uh, just take take it that when you're when you're listening to them, they're presupposing that you agree that there are these kind of uh, kind of beings. Mm-hmm. And but, again, uh, you know, modernists can, can read those metaphorically or, you know, as psychological state. There's different ways to read them, but certainly a lot of Buddhists do take them literally. And so, I, you know, it, it, you can get kind of um, uh, in a certain, get a certain narrow view if you read a lot of Buddhist philosophy mm-hmm. in the same way that it's like if you wanted to learn about Christianity or Islam and you read just philosophers, you'd have a really weird picture of what... <laughs> people think and do. And I think to some extent that happens to Buddhism, people reading Buddhism in, in English and other Western languages. Mm-hmm. But in your book, are you presenting a particular form of Buddhism or are you talking about Buddhism in general? I guess I'm trying to give, you know, in the book, I have found it helpful to think of like, Buddhism's like this big territory, right? And I'm trying to like, give a kind of overview of the territory. So I try to talk about a lot of different ideas in Buddhism and a lot of different, um, uh, I, you know, practices, arguments, or ways of seeing things. And I think part of what I hope that, uh, you know, a reader will get is they'll see that Buddhists disagree with each other about a lot of things. And, and they'll understand a bit more about what they might disagree about or what's at stake. So I, you know, I have my own, you know, there are things that I think make sense and I try to give explanations that make sense in a certain way. So for me, uh, I prefer to uh, understand things in a way that is like not supernatural because it's like I'm a West, I'm, you know, I'm a Western modern person, but I don't try to read that into like what, this is really what Buddhism is all about. I've discovered it or something like that. I try to be like, well, you know, there's different ways of relating and you get different problems if you try to naturalize it or don't. Uh, and I try to sort of uh, give a kind of um, full, as, as full as you can in the space, uh, picture of this this very broad tradition that, you know, is thousands of years and a lot of different cultures. Yeah, but since you're a Western modern person, do you adhere to a form of westernized Buddhism or do you go to the let's say, original sources and think and practice Buddhism as it's been done traditionally? I think that all modern Buddhists have this task of, you know, you have to read the the primary texts, but if you're going to be a practicing Buddhist, you have to integrate it in your life and your situation. So I guess I feel like Part of what I'm trying to demonstrate maybe in the book is like a way of doing that that's kind of more responsible. So I think one thing that happens is like um, sometimes Western Buddhists get really excited about naturalizing Buddhism or, or things or things like that or like particular meditative techniques. And then they they'll say like, oh, the, I found the essence of Buddhism. I figured out what it's really about or whatever. And I I guess I'm just reluctant to do that last step. I'm like, this is an aspect of Buddhism that I've found particularly useful in my time and place, but I don't need to say that like, 
oh, this is the true, authentic, uh, original teaching, or like these other Buddhists are have missed the point or whatever. And I think part of what's interesting about exploring the Buddhist world is you're confronted with things where you're like, oh, you know, I would have dismissed this out of hand, but like, you know, interacting with people who accept it, I can kind of see what it's doing or why it's important or things like that. So like for me, it's like kind of a process of like being confronted with these things and like uh, really taking them seriously. Mm -hmm. So let's now talk about some ideas coming from Buddhism and I will try to follow more or less the structure of the book. Mm -hmm. So what does emptiness mean? In <laughs> so yeah when buddhists say that something is empty what they mean is uh it lacks a certain kind of independent essence so uh, a way that i find helpful to think about it is to say that something's empty means it's not a freestanding independent persistent thing it's essentially i guess it's at bottom relational it's like to be what it is is to have certain relations with other things and those relationships in a certain way define what it is. It's not, it's not like there's a thing and it's, it exists separately from those relations. It kind of emerges out of them. So that's like a kind of first pass of what Buddhists are saying when they're saying that things are empty. Mm -hmm. But that relational nature, does it apply to all sorts of aspects of reality? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you have to be, kind of careful there because it is essentially negative it's saying to say that things are empty isn't to say that things have positive quality of emptiness they're just saying that like having a persistent independent essence is just not a thing that things have it's not saying that like oh it has an essence and it's relational like that's not it's just like things don't have any any kind of essence um so that's i mean that it's it's kind of funny to start with that because it's like that's like one of the like loftiest, most difficult um, ideas in Buddhist philosophy. And it's like uh, sometimes thought of as like maybe even not fully statable because to make a statement is to sort of presume uh, essences in a certain way. Like if I say uh, this pen is black or whatever, like I'm already kind of like, well, there's a thing called the pen. It has a quality. Like you can already like you can already like um, think of it that way. Whereas, if you're thinking about it in 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 terms of emptiness, it's like even the very idea of a pen is dependent on like us being the kinds of creatures that have hands of a certain kind and have memories of a certain kind and have certain goals that require uh, writing things down. Right? Like it's if if we if all if those things were different we wouldn't have pens we wouldn't have the category of pens we'd have different categories um so it's it's a it's a way it sort of touches everything about your experience because you're kind of if you thought that like uh you know as analytic philosophers sometimes talk about cutting nature at the joints that there were certain joints and like pen is like carves nature there's like a certain category built into nature that's like pens right uh, that's a mistake, but it turns out almost all the categories aren't, are, are not, are not out there to be discovered. They're just, they're kind of deeply related to us and, and our aims and the kinds of things that we happen to be and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that concept of emptiness also applies to, uh, for us to understand people and 
how they establish relations with one another yeah so um one of the one of the very important cases of emptiness is uh you and i is you, you know this the self so uh and in a common sense way of thinking it's like oh there's me and i have certain properties and i persist through time this is like implicit in a lot of like stories that we tell it's like oh i was a five-year-old kid and then i went here and then this happened and then that happened to me right and these are all things that i'm i'm positing uh and in a buddhist case it's like yeah that's the kind of story you can tell that's like a, a good enough story but it's not how things really are and the problem is that we start uh, mistaking a convenient story for for uh reality as it is and and that's kind of where the trouble starts. And the trouble starts when we develop a sort of narratives of ourselves. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. And thinking of yourself, like here, I mean, here's a very common way to think about um, things in in political philosophy and ethics and other things is like you can think of it as like, well, suppose we have some relationship. Well, one way to think about it is like, well, there's me, and then there's you. And then we have our own kind of goals and desires and, and identity. And then when we meet, we have to sort of nav like, you know, navigate those or negotiate that kind of thing. That's one picture. But that picture has been then been criticized. Uh, so like you can find criticisms of this kind in feminist philosophy, for example, but also in Buddhism, where there's this criticism that's like, well, built into that very story I just told is this idea that like we exist prior to these relationships. But another uh, another way to understand what's going on is like we sort of emerge out of these relationships. There's not a there's not a me prior to all these relations. I what I am is something that emerges out of and in an important way depends on all these other things. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, that's a kind of easy idea to say. But I think part of what I try to emphasize in the book is Buddhism isn't really about like you say oh all things are empty and the supposed phone says yeah i i agree or, or something like that that's not you you're not like enlightened at that point right you don't so part of it is like a lot of our thinking and and perceiving and and responding to the world presumes that the world is a certain way so part of what buddhism aims to do is like change your very way of experiencing the world so it does it to get rid of these mistaken presuppositions yeah, that's interesting, but isn't that something that could also happen within Buddhism? I mean, because people are influenced, in this case, by Buddhist ideas, they then would develop those sorts of relationships. Uh, I mean, and they would be, inf the way they see the world would be influenced by that. Yeah, uh, but I guess it's like, I'm thinking about cases where like, Sometimes changing your reflective beliefs isn't enough. Mm. Uh, so um, I uh, I often think of it a kind of example like you know lots of cities have these really tall buildings, and on the top deck sometimes there's like a a floor with a glass floor. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people don't want to go out on the glass floor. They're like scared to go out, but you can kind of see them like. Uh, you know, they let their kids jump up and down on it. So it's like, 
clearly they think they believe that it's safe but they have this other residual feeling that they can't isn't touched by that belief so one way to understand what a lot of buddhist practice and buddhist philosophy is about is about changing bringing you know, those kind of feelings and responses in line with you know what you've kind of discovered to be true about the world so uh i guess partly it's like you know sometimes people are like imagine it as like oh i see there's a bunch of doctrine and you have to like nod yes to each item on the list and then if you nod this like that's you've sort of solved it right um but i think the problem is a little bit um trickier because it's more like getting rid of really deep-seated habits Mm -hmm. So before we talk uh, about other ideas in Buddhism, let me just ask you. So are these kinds of truths, let's say, something that people would arrive at via meditation or, or not, or through other yeah. means? Yeah, I think this is one of the places where different forms of Buddhism will disagree. So different forms of Buddhism will emphasize different, different methods for this. So... Uh, for example, when I was um, when I was in graduate school, I was living in a place where the, our landlord was this guy who was really into um, Zen Buddhism, and he had found out that I was doing a PhD in philosophy, and he found out I was interested in Buddhism and that I was mainly focused in Tibetan Buddhism, and he was very kind of like, oh, you Tibetans, like you do all this philosophical debate. There's a whole tradition of debate in in Tibetan Buddhism, and he's like. But that's just a waste of time. You got to just sit on the sit on the cushion and meditate, right? Um, so, I mean, and it, and there's an idea in Buddhism of of adjusting what what you say. There's a kind of pedagogy. Uh, the the Sanskrit term is called upaya, and e so it's described where even the historical Buddha would say different things depending on what he could tell the person needed to hear. Uh, and so a lot of the things that he says uh, aren't meant to be taken as the final the final view or the final word on that subject in the same way that's like you know um if you listen to what a uh, uh, top physicist says in an in intro physics class he's saying mostly things that he thinks are false but you ha you have to start somewhere and, and so there's a lot of that so i mean one one strand in buddhism is that like for some people they have to do it in a kind of reasoning -y way and for some people they have to do it in a more meditation -y way and um but i think part of what you can think about for meditation is uh if you keep in mind that it's about retraining your responses that can make it makes more sense at least to me because um like the tibetan term for meditation is called gom And colloquially, if you, gom just means like you get used to something. So, you know, if you move to a cold place and someone's like, oh, does, you ask someone who lives there, doesn't the cold bother you? Aren't you really cold? They'll say, no, I'm, you know, I'm used to it, right? So I think that's a kind of useful way because meditation means all kinds of different, the English word meditation means all these different things and it can seem kind of like lofty and inaccessible. But if you think about it, it's like, You're just getting used to certain ideas. You have to get used to it. And if you get used to it, you will, um, you know, like someone who's 
used to the cold, it changes their whole experience of winter, right? <laughs> uh, if you're used to the cold, you you certain thoughts don't occur to you, you just uh, certain things don't bother you anymore. If you think about it like that, then it's like getting used to this kind of radical view of how the world is um, about things being empty and and the lack of a self. Meditation is about getting used to that. And maybe you need to like do that. It's not enough to just think it through. Um, but part of why I'm being kind of hedging here is like, depending on what you think meditation is, like if you think it in this broad sense of getting used to stuff, rehearsing an argument in my mind is a kind of meditation. I might need to do that to get used to something. I might need to say, oh, right, right, right. Uh, let me think about this. So in a certain way, doing philosophy is a kind of practice and is a kind of, you know, uh, if you want to say meditative uh, practice, because you, in going through the argument, you are, in a certain way, getting used to certain features of the world. So that's like a different way of thinking about what philosophy is and what it's doing. Yeah, I asked you about meditation and if we could arrive at the same truths, let's say, through other means, because I was just thinking that meditation is something you do alone. So it involves a certain kind of isolation or, or am I thinking wrongly here? Yeah, it's kind of hard because uh, certainly meditation has social aspects like um, and, you know, Scholars in religious studies uh, really pointed this out to me that, you know, you can, one way of kind of thinking about it is like, especially this certain idealized version of meditation is like, you go off to some mountain or some cave by yourself and you whatever. Um, and in certain ways, you can kind of be like, oh, I see it's antisocial. It's outside of the social order. But if you look at, you know, how this happens in Buddhist places, it's like, that's kind of something you do within, that is a social act in a certain way. And one way to think about it is like, when people go off, it's like there's people who are responsible for them, who've taught them, who know that they're doing this. There's people who are like taking care of them and checking on them. It's part of a, it's part of a longer process where they'll do other things. So when you start thinking about it in, in those terms, you can kind of see that like, Actually, this is uh, an activity that is, you know, part of a certain social system, um, which isn't to say that it's not doesn't have features of you doing it alone. But there's a certain way in which, like, I mean, this sort of goes back to emptiness, where it's like it is an interconnected thing. So like and, and just forget about meditation for a second. It's like think about the action of like uh, privately writing in your diary. Right. There's a certain way in which that's not social, but there's a certain way in which it's like you're using language, which is part of it. So there's this whole practice in our society. There's an idea of a diary. You kind of you have this thought of what you're doing. There's a presumed like you're kind of addressing someone like all of that stuff is like in certain ways social. Even though you're kind of doing it by yourself. So I think it's like a little bit complicated to think about like to what extent it's like embedded in these in these broader social structures.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that because it seems that we reason better in groups than in isolation, perhaps that could have some influence in how Buddhist ideas develop. Yeah, and I think an important reason that's implicit in a lot of Buddhist advice to remove yourself from society, at least for periods while you're doing this, is because um, social reality and, you know, your role in society and people's expectations about you exerts a a huge influence. And Mm -hmm. if you're trying to radically change how you experience things, that that influence can make it harder. Um, So I sometimes think about like, uh, you know, when I go back to visit my parents, sometimes I stay with them. And after a couple of days, it's like, they sort of treat me like I was when I lived there in like high school. And the interesting thing is like, I start saying things like I used to say, like, you know, being in that place and, and feeling those expectations make it very easy to kind of slip into like, mom, five more minutes, you know, like whatever, you know, all this stuff I used to say, uh, you, and I can kind of, it kind of be jarring. So if you, if you think about like stuff like that happening all the time, and if you're trying to break out of that, uh, it makes sense to like get some distance from people thinking of like, you know, uh, you know, you as a, oh, you're an interviewer, you're, you're this, you're that, you know, I'm a professor or I'm an American or whatever. There's all these kinds of, of, of pressures that come on. And if, and so one way to get rid of that or to like sort of get some space is to get away from it physically in a certain way. Yeah. So what is attachment for Buddhists? Uh, Attachment. uh, So this is very important. Like attachment is like, uh, one of the root causes of the bad things in life. Um, and I think of attachment as a kind of um, possessiveness or a stickiness. So I, I often imagine it as like sort of, um, you know, like when, when there's certain plants that have little nettles that like stick on your clothes and you can't get rid of them. So it's a kind of, it's kind of like that. It's like you want, to, not only do you want to have good things, but you want to keep them. And you want you want to kind of possess them in a certain way, um, and part of the reason that's bad is implicit in that is an idea of self. Every time I'm kind of attached to um, someone praising me or thinking I'm a certain kind of person or like getting an award and being like I have this award, I'm an award winner or whatever. There's a lot of things you could say that are not great about that, but but from a Buddhist perspective, that all the time is reinforcing of this sense of myself as a separate thing that can have these things and can keep them through time. Um, and for a Buddhist, that's just uh, making it harder and harder to really internalize the emptiness of things. Mm-hmm. How do Buddhists think about personal transformation and personal growth? I mean, I think Buddhism has a lot to say about that because um, that's the whole game is is trans- is guiding the way uh, that your your uh, mind and responses are changing. Um, so there's a there's a big literature in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, called Lojong, which is uh, usually translated as mind training. 
And there, there's like, you know, it's a different kind of meditation in the sense where it's like different from like the usual stuff of like focusing on your breath and, and things like that. Here, it's like you imagine very specific things. You go through a set of, of imaginative vignettes in your mind and you do that over and over. And part of what, what doing that does is like transforms how you relate to real things. Um, so I, I think, you know, personal transformation is just, is very important because the whole point of Buddhism is, is changing how you relate to and experience life. Mm -hmm. But Buddhists also talk about potential, right? I mean, that people have potential, but what does that mean exactly? Yeah, potential is, is tricky. Um, so the the canonical example is something like um, oil and, and a seed. So a uh, seed, they'll say, has the potential for oil. You can, if you crush it up, you can get oil from it. And they'll say that's different from like a pebble or a stone. You can you can crush a stone and it's like you're not going to get oil. So in that sense, you want to say that like it's not like you can slice open the seed and like see the oil, <laughs> but like it's it's kind of there as a potential. Um, so in that sense, it's 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 somewhat optimistic. Um, and you know, certain forms of Buddhism are are quite optimistic, where they think that like in fact, you know, uh, everyone, everyone has as their nature kind of Buddha nature. By and some on some explanations, that mean just means that you're kind of empty and relational. <laughs> um, and so on that way of seeing it, when when you get enlightened, right, nothing happens to you. You don't change at all. What you do is just realize what you always were, which is an empty relational non-being, right? Um, <laughs> So in that sense, it's so much, it's like there, it's like, it's even stronger than the potential where it's like, it's kind of the way you always were, um, but you just kind of clear up a mistake. Um, so I kind of think of it in terms of like correcting other kind of perceptual illusions. So the classic analytic floss, for example, is like you have a glass of water and you have a pencil in it and the pencil looks bent, but then you can, you can kind of like feel it and examine closer and then you see that it's not bent. So when that happens, you're not like, oh, the pencil got fixed, right? <laughs> it was broken <laughs> and then I examined closer and now it's fixed. You, what you realize is like the pencil was never broken. The, the pencil, I just sort of misperceived things about it. So on that model, some Buddhists are thinking like, when you get enlightened, you just sort of realize what was always the case. You kind of clear up a mistake. So nothing really about you changes except for like you now no longer are making a mistake about what kind of thing you are. Mm -hmm. But because things change all the time, do they have any sort of identity? Uh, no. And in fact, it's it gets... One of the things that's hard about personal identity, I think, even you just take, forget about Buddhism for a sec. It's like when you want to think about personal identity, it's hard to talk about it in a way that's not question begging. So if you want to say like, oh, there's, you want to say like, there's me maybe when I was five and then there's me now, but maybe not me. But so it's hard. It's like, even if you want to describe an example, it's hard to even describe it in a way that doesn't 
presuppose something about the answer. So, like, from a Buddhist point of view, even saying that things change, they're kind of like, eh, there's not really things to change. So, like, they'll use an example, like, we might say that, like, um, you know, uh, spring turns to summer and summer turns to fall, that the seasons changed. And they would be like, but that's just a way. It's not, if you thought that there was a thing called the season and it was go- undergoing these changes, they'd be like, that would just be a, a weird mistake that you kind of thought from how we talk. And they would be like, really, what when you say the seasons change, what you're saying is like, summer things occur. <laughs> And then later fall things occur and they're, they're kind of later and maybe causally related. But so for a Buddhist, when you say things change, you're kind of, there's not even really things. It's just like, there's a series of different happenings and that's kind of it. So it's okay. like even headier than, than just trying to say, oh, things change. Cause you can't even really say that exactly. Yeah. And what about the nature of reality? Is reality, as we experience it, uh, any form of illusion? Yeah. So, I, I mean, this is a certain... This, I think this is an important difference between the approach of Buddhist philosophers and the approach of, for example, contemporary analytic philosophers. So, in analytic philosophy, the presupposition is often that we have a lot of common sense beliefs about the world, but they're kind of incoherent. So the job of someone doing metaphysics is to like make a coherent vision of how the world is that preserves as much of common sense as possible. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of dialectically, there's a lot of moves where you can say, well, that's counterintuitive, right? And then you kind of get people being like, well, what are intuitions? And then you have X5 people doing that or you know, uh, ordinary language stuff. People are trying to figure out what even the intuitions are that we want to pres- preserve. <laughs> um, but, and this isn't just true of Buddhism. In in a lot of Indian philosophy, they're not trying to preserve uh, common sense. The assumption is that, like, there's a bunch of problems in life, and the problems must be because, like, a lot of things that seem like common sense truths are not true. So we then part of what you're doing is like diving into common sense to see what you're going to throw out. So it's in a certain way, if there's a metaphysics, if someone's like, oh, but you're saying that like uh, this pen doesn't exist. It's just a collection of pen parts that's arbitrarily labeled or whatever. That's so counterintuitive. But just be like, yeah, that's like that's where it gets its power to transform your relation to the world and and bring about. Uh, an end to suffering is that like this thing that really seemed like it was true is you got to get rid of it right so i think that's part of the that's part of the issue so it's like in 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 a lot of not just buddhism in a lot of indian philosophy it's like reality is not as it seems and the name of the game is like how is it like what part of how it seems do we have to get rid of and and part of it is like through philosophical argumentation, but part of it's like, what's going to bring about an ethical change? Right. So, I mean, the nature, the way we think about the nature of reality as existential implications for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, and 
Uh, you can kind of see this, you know, if you talk, if you go to like Tibet or Nepal and you talk to people about Western philosophers, it's very common for them to say like, oh, does does this metaphysician think that they'll get enlightened by, by working out this theory? And if you say no, they're kind of like, well, what are they doing? <laughs> like, what's the point? Like, you know, uh, so there definitely is a kind of certain um, transformative motivation. Um, and you can kind of see this in, in other, you know, it's not absent from Western philosophy, whereas, you know, Plato or Spinoza, they have pretty wild metaphysical ideas, but they partly they think that that's going to bring about a, a change in how you actually live day to day if you really internalize them. Right. But I, I mean, are we ourselves? I mean, <laughs> of course, we can get here again into the question <laughs> of the self, but uh, are we even real? Are people real? Uh, short answer is no. Okay. I mean, so in the sense of, um, I mean, I use the example of a, a stack or pile, which is like a, a typical Buddhist example, but like, um, suppose I have a stack of soup cans on the table and I have, you know, there's a stack of five of them. Is, if you say, is the stack real? In one sense, no. Here's the sense in why you would know that it's no, because like if you say how many things are on the table and if there's a stack of five cans, it's weird if I say, oh, there's six things. There's five cans in one stack. And you're like, uh, the stack just is the cans. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> you're double counting, right? The stack just is the cans. And Buddhists will say something similar where it's like there are definitely like mental and physical events. Some Buddhists will deny the physical ones, you know, whatever. Um, but to say that there's a me over and above those is is to make a mistake like the stack of cans is what they're saying. So when you say that that we're not real, that's what you're saying. But there's it doesn't mean that there's no cans there. <laughs> it just means that this extra thing that you sort of feel like there is, it isn't there. So, or like just to go back, it's like if you thought there was a, a thing that was the season. And, you know, it had the property of being the summer or being fall or something like that. You'd be like, oh, no, no, that's not that's not that season isn't real in that sense. But certainly weather happens. <laughs> Different weather happens in, in sequence. And if you're like, yeah, if that's all you mean, then sure. But if you think it's something more robust, then then you're making a mistake. Yeah. Uh, should the idea that things do not last forever, and I mean, forget forever, most things do not <laughs> even last for long, should that idea frighten us? Um, well, in any case, it does. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, um, and one way to think about um, that, I mean, so I guess it's like, yeah, and in certain ways... Um, wh when that idea frightens you, there's two ways you can respond. One is to like ignore it and pretend like things are going to last forever. And then that's pretty good for a while. But then eventually when they change too much, you can't keep the pretense up. And I think one of the things that I like about Buddhism is it takes a 
uh, a way of responding to it where it's like, no, let's look really closely at it and try to forge a way of of living that's meaningful that incorporates that as a basic uh, building block that just it totally acknowledges that. Um, so I think it's like, yeah, it is scary. And I think that if you're able to, uh, there's something that's really valuable about facing it. Mm -hmm. But so that can also apply to death, right? I mean, how do Buddhists think about death? Is it just another sort of transformative step? It, is it an end in and of itself or what exactly? Yeah, so I mean, in in a lot of frameworks, it's like if you're thinking about um, you're thinking about a chain of mental and physical events that is going to go through many births and deaths. Those are just sort of steps on a, on a chain. So adopting that broader view is you know hard, and it's certainly at odds with with a lot of common sense. But like, can um, really change how you're thinking about it. And you know, in practice, it's it's hard, you know, um, there's, there were some studies recently, uh, of, um, uh, Jake Garfield and, um, Sean Nichols did these studies where they asked regular people and monastics who meditate about sort of measure different measures of fear of death. And it turned out that some monastics who meditate had a higher <laughs> fear of death. So people didn't like that. And they had different, uh, different, different theories about why that that was true or like you know people were talking about that for a while but um uh yeah death is death is just uh also a very important aspect in in a certain way if you think about it, it's like that's one of the times where it's like you're just really confronted with impermanence you can't you can't pretend like things aren't impermanent whereas like you know if i start to get aches or you know if i you know I lose a tooth or something like that. I can kind of like put that out of my mind or something like that. But like if, if I or someone I care about dies, I just can't, it's, I'm, I'm forced to confront it. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think, I do think there's a lot of very important stuff about death um, in, in Buddhism and it does play a really important role. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about uh, things that Buddhists think people should pursue in life uh, regarding personal transformation. Uh, do they think that people should pursue particular goals, like, for example, being happy, being successful, and things like that? Yeah, and, and you know, Buddhism comes out of a broader Indian tradition, and in, in Indian philosophy, there's, um, there's a list of four arthas, or, like, aims of life, and, you know, some of... You know, some of them are higher than others, but they're they're definitely you, we can have different aims at different levels, and I think that's uh, that's just a very uh, sensible way to approach it. In the sense that, like, even not you know not thinking about Indian philosophy, it's like we have those things. It's like I I have an aim that's like maybe I want to have ice cream tonight, and then maybe I also like. Uh, I have some loftier aim about like, oh, I want to make Buddhism more visible in philosophy. Like those are really different aims. And I, it's like, I have them both. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in a certain way I might compromise, like if I had a real, a chance to forward the aim of uh, philosophers talking about Buddhist 
Buddhism more. I might skip the ice cream, right? <laughs> uh, uh, but in certain ways, like have, maybe having the ice cream is gonna like help me be, you know, more relaxed and happy to to do this other thing. So I think um, part of the aims, part of the thing to keep keep in mind, especially regarding Buddhism, is like traditionally, you you this transformation happens over an incredibly long period of time. So uh, in a traditional framework, it might be like, yeah, what I'm going to do is like, you know, do my work and like try to be nice to people and like support the monastery. And then like maybe in some at some distant future time, I'll be able to like really dig into like meditation or philosophy or something like that. Uh, so it's like a, a lot of people re relate to Buddhism in that way. And part of relating to it that way is like, seeing it on a on a broader time scale so you know if you're a kind of modernist or a naturalist then you you don't want to think about you want to think about like this particular life you can think about that in a traditional source and traditional sources we're often talking about future lives and then they'll be like but even in this life you should blah 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 um uh but you know there it's like you're thinking about the transformation on a on a much shorter time scale. So you're going to think about it pretty pretty differently and you're going to think what what you should do is is maybe pretty different. Mm -hmm. But do Buddhists care about specific things like uh, happiness for example? Um certainly happiness is good. <laughs> it's it's nice. But a way to think about it is like happiness is just another thing within a kind of um, not uh, a kind of d delusional framework. So, um, and part of what you can see Buddhism as aiming for is it's like it's aiming to to get you out of that framework. So, um, what here's the thing that we call happiness is like. Um, you know, conventionally things go well for me in the sense that like, you know, uh, I give, I give a lecture and then people like it and they're clapping and they say, yay. And I feel happy. Right. Uh, but in a certain way, like that, you know, the sound of the applause and my feeling of, oh yeah, great. I'm like soaking in. That's kind of reinforcing my sense of self. Right. And it's yeah. feels nice. But it's kind of like one way to understand Buddhism is Buddhism saying like, hey, you got to give up that whole game. And like playing any game, it's like sometimes you're winning and it's nice and sometimes you're losing. But there's something different and, you know, Buddhists might will say like better about just giving up the game entirely. And it's like you could still play, but like knowing that it's a game and not being really invested in it. And that sort of turns down the volume on how good it feels when people applaud. But so maybe you're less happy in that sense, but you get this other better thing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that it makes it makes sense to you. <laughs> yes, it makes. But but then should we live life selflessly? Is that what that means? Yes, because. Um, Well, I guess it's like, here's another thing that Buddhists, uh, uh, another piece of the framework is that like, sort of like I mentioned before about like talking, like a physics teacher teaching intro physics. It's like, 
it's like, should those students learn about the relationship between force, mass, and acceleration? Even though, like, the physicist's own view might be like, none of those categories really apply to understanding reality as it is. Nevertheless, like, where they are, they should be working that out, right? So there's an acknowledgement in Buddhism of, like, people having different capacities and being in a different place. And so for some people, um, yeah, that's what they should do because trying to do something harder would be counterproductive given where they're at. So there's a kind of idea of like incremental progress. Um, so if you ask kind of like, what should people do? I think a very Buddhist response is like, I need to know more about what their capacities are, where they're at intellectually, emotionally, perceptually, what kind of situation they're in. And then I can tell you what they should do. I can't just say like, here's the final answer and you should just think that. Because like, in the same way, it's like if a physics teacher walks into a 101 class and starts talking about nine dimensional strings vibrating and what, you know, whatever, it's not gonna mean anything to any of the students sitting in there. Like they're, they're, they're not even gonna be able to understand what's happening. So it's not it's just not gonna be helpful, even though he may think that it's like, you know, or, you know the, whoever the professors might think that that's true. Mm -hmm. Does Buddhist philosophy have anything to say about morality in terms of, for example, are Buddhists uh, moral realists, moral relativists, moral nihilists? Or what exactly? Um, partly it's kind of hard because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a meta-ethicist, but some of the ways that meta-ethicists talk... So I've, I've now made it clear that I'm not... <laughs> but when I listen to meta-ethicists, some of the ways that, for example, moral realism is is explained is in terms of, for example, mind depend, mind independence. So you know, for a lot of Buddhists, like especially if you're taking emptiness seriously or if they have a certain, um, certain other views that make the mind more central, mind independence isn't really going to make a lot of sense. So then that whole division kind of doesn't make sense in that framework. So this is all like a, a kind of way to be like, it can be kind of hard to even even categorize. Um, so that's, I mean, that, that makes it a little bit hard. Um, and in a certain way, you know, depending on how you're thinking of the scope of morality, you can see uh, the whole... One way to understand the whole Buddhist system is it's it's all like if you're speaking in a in a religious studies register, it's all soteriologically motivated. It's like it's a kind of practical solution to a practical problem. And if you think practical stuff is ethical, then the whole thing is ethical. Right. So there's a certain way in which the whole thing whole thing is kind of an ethical system. And, yeah, they talk about metaphysics along the way. Uh, and it's that's kind of a, a part of it. But it's in this broader practical framework. Uh, so in that sense, it's like. The whole thing is the whole thing is ethical. Yeah, what do Buddhists think about this life that we live now? I mean, I'm not talking about possible life after death or something like that. But is life fundamentally bad, good, something in between? I mean, famously, so uh, when people talk about 
So an important part, like basic Buddhist concept is this idea of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so some, you know, if you're not familiar, basically it's like it's modeled on this diagnostic framework where it's like, well, there's a problem that there's kind of suffering and then there's like um, a diagnosis of the source of it. And then there's a kind of prognosis about whether it's curable. And then there's like a kind of uh, steps for curing the, the problem. So it's modeled on this kind of disease model. But if you just focus on the be, the beginning of it, you, it can seem like, oh, I see. Buddhists think that life is really bad and life is suffering and blah, blah, blah. But if you remember the other, you know, the third and fourth noble truths is, are quite positive. They're like, yeah, in fact, it's curable and here are the steps to do it. Um, so in that sense, um, Buddhists are realistic about the badness in life and and they diagnose that badness as stemming from um, a mismatch between how we experience life and how it really is um, but they're optimistic in that they think it's fixable and it's may, maybe it takes a long time or whatever but it's not like it's doomed to be that way in a certain way there's 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 a kind of optimism there yeah. Explain the concept of karma, because that's something that people, uh, it's a word that people use colloquially when something bad happens to someone who supposedly deserves it. It's <laughs> yeah. karma, but yeah. that's probably not the way Buddhists think about it. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, an important thing to keep in mind is that um, uh, karma is not, uh, it's not the it's not a technical term that's owned by Buddhism. It's like a pan-Indian term. So um, karma is going to get used in different ways in different periods by different philosophers. Most fundamentally, the literal meaning of karma is action. It just means like a thing that you, something you do. Um, later it gets... So initially, a long pre-Buddhist, it means like specific ritual actions, particularly actions in a ritual context that you take to bring about certain effects you do the ritual so that you know the rain will come or whatever and then it starts to get broadened um uh but f f in a buddhist framework if you say that something is someone's karma you're saying that's like they did it it's their doing so in that sense like if i have a hangover you can say like hey it's your karma in the sense that like i what one thing i did last night was drink a lot of alcohol <laughs> And so the result of drinking a lot of alcohol is the hangover. So the hangover is is like karma in the sense that uh, I did it, right? And I, my own view, you know, people, it's very tempting to import a notion of deservingness to that. But I think that's not really uh, part of it in the sense that it's separable. Like you can say that, um, you know, if, it's it's an open question whether I deserve the hangover. I definitely acted in ways that caused the hangover, and it's the result of certain certain behaviors that I've done. Um, but it's open to a Buddhist to say that like beings act in ways that cause suffering, and they can also say that no beings deserve suffering. So, it's it's um, you have to be very careful here about like whether and you're right that it's colloquially people are using it in this sense of like you you deserved it but 
I think it kind of shades into that. It's not like it's totally uh, 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 a non sequitur to import that because you could be like, well, you know, it's like here are things you could say. It's like you drink a lot of alcohol. It's predictable. <laughs> it makes sense in the sense that like, yeah, if you've been around in the in this world for a while, you know that if you drink that kind of thing, this kind of result is going to happen. So in that sense, like you can get even a kind of like a sense of like, well, maybe you should have known better or whatever. But that's that's kind of brushing up against the idea of, of deserving. But um, I think it's important to keep in keep in mind that like they're not necessarily saying that. Right. And what is nirvana? What do Buddhists really mean when they talk about it? <laughs> yeah, so, I know, I know. Traditionally, uh, it's like there's this cycle of birth and death, and nirvana is ending that cycle. So, like etymologically, people will say it's related to like blowing out a flame, extinguishing something. Um, so, you know. What, how much you can describe it in language is is a is a a matter of debate, but it's definitely like uh, it's it's the 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 good state to be in, and you know as we sort of mentioned before, maybe is the kind of state that you're already in, but you just don't realize it, or maybe it's some state that you have to get. There's kind of de debate about that, but uh, it's kind of um, ending the kind of suffering of life where it's like you're kind of not touched by by this uh by the bad things in life anymore because you've recalibrated how you relate to the world mm -hmm. but uh, i mean is it really possible for someone to get to that state or is just a, a sort of ideal again it depends on how you're thinking about it because again it's like uh, it could be like asking, like, we're looking at the pencil in the in the glass of water and be like, is it really possible to fix the pencil so it's straight? <laughs> uh, you know, and that might make sense from a certain point of view, but someone who knows better might be like, what do you mean is it possible to fix the pen? The pencil is never broken. It was never bent. It's just like, of course it's possible for the pencil to be straight. Pencil is and always was straight, you know. So some Buddhists think about it like that, right? Um, but other Buddhists, it's like, it is a kind of regulative ideal that, like, you, it is a sort of different state that you get to, and it's kind of far off, and it's at least going to take a long, 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 long time <laughs> to get to, right? So, but you know, these are kind of different, different conceptions within the Buddhist world about how the, how this is going to work. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is a good question to ask or not, but is Buddhism compatible with science? I guess uh, it depends. I guess I, I hate to give this usual philosopher answer of like, it depends on which <laughs> Buddhism and which science. Um, yeah. There's definitely people who are interested in making it compatible, in forging a Buddhism that is compatible with a certain kind of science. And um, there's some people, some Buddhists think that that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, not possible that like, trying to get rid of the things that are incompatible with science in a in buddhism uh makes it so that the 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 entire framework collapses some some buddhists think that some buddhists are more optimistic about it um and some uh you know my 
there's a there's a philosopher at UBC called Evan Thompson who has this book Why I'm Not a Buddhist. Um, but in that book, part of his complaint is about Buddhists who are trying to make it compatible with science. They have a bad conception of science. Like he thinks they need to think about science pretty differently. Um, so, you know, not being a philosopher of science, I don't have a lot to say about that. But that's also kind of tricky whether you know how how you're thinking about science and what its domain is and what it includes or doesn't include or things like that. Yeah. But when exactly did Buddhism enter into Western intellectual culture? Um, so there, at least in, in, so there were a lot of, um, missionary work is an early, an early point of contact. Um, there's a lot of early stuff in, um, in German, German philology, um, in, in English language stuff, uh, a lot of it happens in the 1800s, um, and a lot of it comes, and I think this is an important thing to keep in mind when you're engaging with contemporary English English language stuff on Buddhism, because it's part of this history of, of how it came. And so how it came, partly people who were interested in Buddhism early on were uh, the Romantics, the Transcendentalists, and they were very interested in romanticism and transcendentalism so they found in buddhist texts those things and they kind of ignored things that weren't didn't fit with that and then you kind of have this strand this is this is a kind of very condensed history but like you have this strand where it's like you can see the heirs to those traditions uh, of romanticism and, and transcendentalism of like the beat poets uh the hippies the new age movement right so um, if, if when someone says Buddhism, you kind of think of like a kind of new age hippie, do what you feel nature loving thing, partly you think that not because of anything to do with Buddhism, because those were the people who kind of brought Buddhism over and they emphasize the things that they like and they de-emphasize the things that they don't like. Um, so I think that's an important part of like navigating what Buddhism is in Western culture. What is it that you call in the book cafeteria Buddhism? Yeah, there's different names for it, but basically it's it's this idea that but it's usually applied to like Western modern Buddhists where it's like, uh, you know, like in a cafeteria you have a tray and then you slide it down this long buffet and if so, if you like something you take it and if you don't like it you don't take it. So the idea is that the, these Buddhists are like sort of taking different things from different traditions kind of whenever it's convenient and whenever it's easy and if something is not easy or doesn't fit with if what they want they just leave it out. Um, so it's usually a, a a term of criticism because it's like you can kind of see that it's like people are picking and choosing certain aspects of the tradition. Um, so in that sense, it's supposed to be bad. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated. Like I think partly if you're thinking of Buddhism as a, a kind of fixed thing or a tradition as a fixed static thing that's kind of fossilized, uh, then that makes sense. But if you think about traditions or, you know, forms of Buddhism as like, always changing you know the buddhism you're going to find in uh 
300 BCE in India in India is different from the Buddhism you find in you know the 1400s in Japan. Uh, so Buddhism is like is changing, right? So in a certain way, part of what's going on in cafeteria Buddhism is the thing that always has gone on, and it's an important thing to go on. It's like, you know, you emphasize the things that are relevant, and you sort of de-emphasize the things that are no longer relevant, because otherwise, if you don't do that, the whole thing just becomes irrelevant and forgotten, <laughs> right? Um, but it is a danger, because, like, uh, you know, it, the risk is, like, finding in Buddhism only things that you already think. And so you just take the things that are convenient and you forge Buddhism into your own image of it rather than being challenged by it and like being confronted with things that uh, maybe are implied by some of the things you like, but you, you know, you don't, don't want to accept or something like that. Yeah. And what do you think about mindfulness? Oh, mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that oh, what do I think about mindfulness? It's definitely different things to different people and it's sort of become this thing of like, you know, like every university I've worked at is like emailed me about oh, if I'm stressed I should do this mindfulness seminar. <laughs> and there I think the thing that's different it's like obviously if doing mindfulness helps people to feel better and less stressed it's like that's a good thing so like i i want to be clear about that <laughs> i think the thing that's a little bit funny about it is sometimes it has this um it has this sort of scent of buddhism around it <laughs> but sometimes people do it in a way that sort of decontextualizes it from buddhism and, and in decontextualizing it changes it in certain ways um so for example traditionally uh, when you do mindfulness, um, there are certain benefits and, you know, it's being less stressed would be one of them, but you know, they t text list other ones, like your complexion gets better and you can fly through the air and you can remember your previous lives. And, but the interesting thing about those benefits is like, those are all supposed to be kind of distractions. Those aren't supposed to be why you do it. Um, and you know, if I hope would be clear by now, it's like, you're doing it to get used to certain really deep truths about how the world is and in part of this broader framework to radically change your your orientation. So that's kind of why it exists in a Buddhist context. And, you know, if it happens to be useful for getting rid of stress, I think, of, you know, in a traditional context, they, you know, a Buddhist would be like, yeah, okay, but like, that's not why I'm doing it. Uh, like, I think I use the analogy in the book of like, um, I might send a, you know, if I have a friend who's writing a novel, I might send them an article. It's like, Hey, it turns out writing novels like helps prevent Alzheimer's. And then, but then it's like weird if I'm like, that's why you're doing it. Right. Cause you don't want to get Alzheimer's. They'd be like, no, I mean, that's nice, but I'm doing it cause I want to express myself or I have, you know, I want to create art or like some loftier goal. And I think in a certain way, um, uh, traditional Buddhists at least might feel that way about, taking mindfulness out of the context and sort of and doing it in this other way um mm -hmm. but that said it's like i guess i'll i also personally would think like it's weird to be like thinking that buddhism owns the idea of closely attending to your breathing and <laughs> <laughs> like that seems like a little too uh 
uh, universal, like certainly other people have done that in other contexts. And um, so anyway, it's and it's like mindfulness has since become this kind of whole industry. And like many things in in, you know, the capitalist world, it's like it gets packaged and sold and, you know, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, so you're a practicing Buddhist, right? On some definitions of practicing and on some definitions of <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like it would depend on, it. I think, whether or not I am a Buddhist or whatever. It would depend on who, who you ask and, and, and whatever. And I think more to the point, it's like... Um, I don't think it really matters in I mean I definitely write about Buddhism in a way that is not merely descriptive I'm not just describing it from the outside so it's like I do think of myself as like I'm trying to make sense of it as a philosopher and also like uh, as a person who wants to be realistic about for example like colonialism and um uh and certain ways in which um you have to take the tradition seriously. You can't just like ignore certain things you don't like in a tradition. Um, so I think in certain ways, my descriptions are like trying to make sense of those, of those tensions. Mm -hmm. And do, since you are a philosopher, do you think that people who approach Buddhism from a philosopher's point of view and simply try to think about all of these ideas and reflect on them would also be a practicing Buddhist. I guess I think, I mean, one thing that's uh, about my own background is um, I was interested in, in reading Buddhist texts before I understood that there was a discipline called philosophy. So okay. I didn't even really know what philosophy was, but I had, already read so, so in that sense even not knowing what philosophy was i wanted to approach it that way maybe i got it through osmosis or something like that but i definitely was approaching it with a, a way of like oh i'm gonna think through these things um so i have a temperament that is like a philosophical kind of temperament i i want to think through things and think about the ideas and try to state them clearly and, and try to understand them or whatever. Um, I, I, I have no illusions that that's, I don't think that's how most Buddhists in the world relate to Buddhism uh, in the same way that it's like, um, you know, the people in the theology department at Notre Dame think about God pretty differently from how my grandma thinks of God. But there's more Christians like my grandma than there are like the theologians. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I try to keep that in mind and in certain ways my, in when presenting Buddhism of acknowledging that. And so it's like, um, I more think of it as like, that's how I have to do it. Cause that's kind of my temperament, but other people have different temperaments. So they might do, might do it a different way. The kinds of Buddhist exercises you present in the book toward the latter part of it, uh, do they have specific goals and are they for a specific target audience, people who have specific goals that they want to achieve or 
what yeah yeah definitely um i mean part of what i wanted to do in the book is describe a wide range of buddhist practices of things that buddhists actually do um mm -hmm. and you know more than just mindfulness meditation like other kinds of things too um but one thing that's kind of i have to try to you know be careful about when i'm doing that is like no Buddhist, certainly no Buddhist does all of the practices I've described. Um, and partly it's because different traditions emphasize different kinds of practices. Different teachers might emphasize a different practice for a particular student because of their particular temperament. So, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of want to just, I wanted to give a sense of like how much there is in the Buddhist world and kind of like the the full range of what, what Buddhists are are doing and why mm -hmm. so uh, my final question will be if someone would like to become a buddhist what would be your advice what would be the first steps uh. they should take <laughs> um <laughs> i think that the first thing to keep in mind is um i would say it's important to approach things as like keeping in mind that Buddhism is a real religion, right? In the sense that like uh, you shouldn't go into it thinking that there is some one Buddhist view and Buddhists all agree about it. Uh, and and once you give that up, you can kind of think that like, oh, I think it's exciting. There's exciting. This is a framework for me to like figure out different ideas and what's going to work for me. So one thing is like being realistic about the amount of diversity there is in Buddhism. Um, and then once you keep that in mind, then you can realize that like when people write about Buddhism, myself included, they're not kind of giving you the, like the, from the mountaintop truth. <laughs> they're, you know, they're writing from a certain point of view. And sometimes it's a traditional point of view. Sometimes it's a modern point of view. Sometimes it's a philosophical point of view. Sometimes it's practical. Sometimes it's the point of view of a certain sect of Buddhism that has certain political aims, that has certain historical. Things. So it's like once you keep that in mind, it it helps to sort out the various, um, basically the mess of what's what's written in Buddhism about English. In, in English, you know, it's like people are writing a lot of different stuff. Um, so and I guess I would advise, um, um, you know, it's hard. It's I guess it's hard to I guess it's hard to give this kind of advice because it's like it depends on what you are and what you need. So, for example, if you need a, if you really need a community, if you're a kind of person who needs community, then you should seek out a Buddhist community and try to see what's going on there and and you know um carefully pick the one for you if you're like a studier then it's like well you should look at the texts and maybe that's your way in or like maybe you really like art and it's like you should look at buddhist art and then in looking at the buddhist art you'll kind of get a handle on the ideas or, or things like that so it's you know i think one of the things that's kind of hard about writing the book is the book is supposed to describe buddhism but also like kind of give kind of advice for how to live from a Buddhist perspective. And part of like what's hard about giving advice in a book is like, you don't know who's going to read it <laughs> and you don't know what their situation is, their tendencies, their whatever. So it's kind of hard to give advice. That's not either like so general that it's trivial or like so 
specific <laughs> that it's not going to apply to people. Um, so I guess it's just like um, I would say keep in mind that Buddhism is pretty diverse. Uh, try to be responsible about um, uh, checking yourself about being careful about like just trying to find what you like in Buddhism and ignoring the things you don't like. Like it's okay to be like, yeah, I'm Buddhist and there's a lot of things in Buddhism that like rub me the wrong way or I really struggle with or I really don't like or like whatever. That's fine. It's like now you're a real person struggling like like real people do. So I, I guess I would sort of say like uh, keep in mind that it's it, it is diverse and um, and it's it's supposed to be helpful and rewarding to like sort through these things and you'll figure out stuff about yourself, too. Right. But do you think that people can do it alone or that they at least uh, should uh, should seek the advice of someone who's already a Buddhist that perhaps can help them taking into account their personality and other aspects of their psychology? I think it couldn't hurt. Um, and I think part of... Um, Yeah, it couldn't hurt. Although it's except when it hurts, <laughs> right? So it's like you might seek out, you know, a uh, uh, Buddhist community, and it turns out uh, the vibe there, the practices aren't the ones for you. Um, and it's, I think, if you keep in mind that it's like, if there's something that seems right in Buddhism or seems helpful, uh, I guess I would say like pull on that thread. So maybe the thread is you know, a certain kind of meditation. Maybe you did some mindfulness and it was helpful, but you want you want to follow the thread into Buddhism more. So partly, like, that might be a way into, like, well, what is mindfulness in a Buddhist context? What's it doing? Why are they doing it? Like, whatever. So it could go in that way. It could be philosophical, like you reading philosophical texts and trying to figure that out, and that kind of is a way in. So I think there's different ways in. Um, and I think it's important to, like... Um, uh, be self-aware about um, what the kind of way in is that's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's end on that note. Uh, the book, again, is Seeing Clearly, A Buddhist Guide to Life. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have a website. It's uh, nickbomarito.com. There's no K on Nick, N-I-C-B-O-M-M-A-R-I-T-O.com. Um, uh yeah that's where that's where you should go i guess uh, it, okay so i will put a link to that in the description box of the interview and dr bomberito thank you again for taking the time to come on the show it's thanks. been a pleasure to talk yeah to you. it was a lot of fun thanks a lot hello everybody thank you for watching this interview until the end so it is thanks to people like you that the show has been running for such long time more than three years now and I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, hit the subscription button and comment on it. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Kenny Litzka and Blanchett Perger, Larson Lau Guerrero, 
Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Bosbo, Weingard, Becker, Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Alla Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliz, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.